Appendix C. The Autoerotic Factor in Religion. From Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume 1, by Havelock Ellis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Neufeld. Appendix C. The Autoerotic Factor in Religion. The intimate association between the emotions of love and religion is well known to all those who are habitually brought into close contact with the phenomena of the religious life. Love and religion are the two most volcanic emotions to which the human organism is liable, and it is not surprising that when there is a disturbance in one of these spheres the vibrations should readily extend to the other. Nor is it surprising that the two emotions should have a dynamic relation to each other and that the auto-erotic impulse, being the more primitive and fundamental of the two impulses, should be able to pass its unexpended energy over to the religious emotion, the love of the human becoming the love of the divine. I was not good enough for man, so I am given to God. Even when there is absolute physical suppression on the sexual side, it seems probable that thereby a greater intensity of spiritual fervor is caused. Many eminent thinkers seem to have been without sexual desire. It is a noteworthy and significant fact that the age of love is also the age of conversion. Starbuck, for instance, in his very elaborate study of the psychology of conversion, shows that the majority of conversions take place during the period of adolescence, that is, from the age of puberty to about twenty-four or twenty-five. It would be easy to bring forward a long series of observations, from the most various points of view, to show the wide recognition of this close affinity between the sexual and the religious emotions. It is probable, as Hahn points out, that the connection between sexual suppression and religious rites, which we may trace at the very beginning of culture, was due to an instinctive impulse to heighten rather than abolish the sexual element. Early religious rites were largely sexual and orgiastic, because they were largely an appeal to the generative forces of nature to exhibit a beneficial productiveness. Among happily married people, as Hahn remarks, the sexual emotions rapidly give place to the cares and anxieties involved in supporting children. But when the exercise of the sexual function is prevented by celibacy, or even by castration, the most complete form of celibacy, the sexual emotions may pass into a psychical sphere to take on a more pronounced shape. The early Christians adopted the traditional Eastern association between religion and celibacy, and as the writers of the Fathers amply show, they expended on sexual matters a concentrated fervor of thought, barely known to the Greek and Roman writers of the best period. As Christian theology developed, the minute inquisition into sexual things sometimes became almost an obsession. So far as I am aware, however, I cannot profess to have made any special investigation, it was not until the late Middle Ages that there is any clear recognition of the fact that between the religious emotions and the sexual emotions there is not only a superficial antagonism, but an underlying relationship. At this time, so great a theologian and philosopher as Aquinas said that it is especially on the days when a man is seeking to make himself pleasing to God that the devil troubles him by polluting him with seminal emission. 
with somewhat more psychological insight the wise old knight of the tower landry in the fourteenth century tells his daughters that quote, no young woman in love can ever serve her god with that unfeignedness which she did aforetime for i have heard it argued by many who in their young days had been in love that when they were in the church the condition and the pleasing melancholy in which they found themselves would infallibly set them brooding over their tender lovesick longings in all their amorous passages when they should have been attending to the service which was going on at the time and such is the property of this mystery of love that it is ever at the moment when the priest is holding our saviour upon the altar that the most enticing emotions come after narrating the history of two queens beyond the seas who indulged in amours even on holy thursday and good friday at midnight in their oratories when the lights were put out he concludes every woman in love is more liable to fall in church or at her devotion than at any other time the connection between religious emotion and sexual emotion was very clearly set forth by swift about the end of the seventeenth century in a passage which it may be worth while to quote from his discourse concerning the mechanical operation of the spirit after mentioning that he was informed by a very eminent physician that when the quakers first appeared he was seldom without female quaker patients afflicted with nymphomania swift continues persons of a visionary devotion either men or women are in their complexion of all others the most amorous for zeal is frequently kindled from the same spark with other fires and from inflaming brotherly love will proceed to raise that of a gallant if we inspect into the usual process of modern courtship we shall find it to consist in a devout turn of the eyes called ogling an artificial form of canting and whining by rote every interval for want of other matter made up with a shrug or a hum a sigh or a groan the style compact of insignificant words incoherences and receptions these i take to be the most accomplished rules of address to a mistress and where are those performed with more dexterity than by the saints nay to bring this argument yet closer i have been informed by certain sanguine brethren of the first class that in their height and orgasmus of their spiritual exercise it has been frequent with them immediately after which they found the spirit to relax and flag of a sudden with the nerves and they were forced to hasten to a conclusion this may be farther strengthened by observing with wonder how unaccountably all females are attracted by visionary or enthusiastic preachers though never so contemptible in their outward mien which is usually supposed to be done upon considerations purely spiritual without any carnal regards at all but i have reason to think the sex hath certain characteristics by which they form a truer judgment of human abilities and performings than we ourselves can possibly do of each other let that be as it will this much is certain that however spiritual intrigues begin they generally conclude like all others they may branch upwards towards heaven but the root is in the earth too intense a contemplation is not the business of flesh and blood it must by the necessary course of things in a little time get its hold and fall into matter 
lovers for the sake of celestial converse are but another sort of platonics who pretend to see star and heaven in ladies eyes and to look or to think no lower but the same pit is provided for both to come down to recent times in the last century the headmaster of clifton college when discussing the sexual vices of boyhood remarks that the boys whose temperament exposes them to these faults are usually far from destitute of religious feelings, that there is, and always has been, an undoubted coexistence of religion and animalism, that emotional appeals and revivals are far from rooting out carnal sin, and that in some places, as is well known, they seem actually to stimulate, even to the present day, to increased licentiousness. It is not difficult to see how, even in technique, the method of the revivalist is a quasi-sexual method, and resembles the attempt of the male to overcome the sexual shyness of the female. In each case, as W. Thomas remarks, the will has to be set aside, and strong suggestive means are used, and in both cases the appeal is not of the conflict type, but of an intimate, sympathetic, and pleading kind. In the effort to make a moral adjustment, it consequently turns out that a technique is used which was derived originally from sexual life, and the use, so to speak, of the sexual machinery for a moral adjustment involves, in some cases, the carrying over into the general process of some sexual manifestations. The relationship of the sexual and the religious emotions, like so many other of the essential characters of human nature, is seen in its nakedest shape by the alienist. Esquirol referred to this relationship, and many years ago J. B. Friedreich, a German alienist of wide outlook and considerable insight, emphasized the connection between the sexual and the religious emotions, and brought forward illustrative cases. Schroeder von der Kolk also remarked, I venture to express my conviction that we should rarely err if, in a case of malicious melancholy, we assumed the sexual apparatus to be implicated. Regis, in France, lays it down that there exists a close connection between mystic ideas and erotic ideas, and most often these two orders of conception are associated in insanity. Berthier considered that erotic forms of insanity are those most frequently found in convents. Bevan Lewis points out how frequently religious exaltation occurs at puberty in women, and religious depression at the climacteric period of sexual decline. Religion is very closely allied to love, remarks Savage, and the love of woman and the worship of God are constantly sources of trouble in unstable youth. It is very interesting to note the frequency with which these two deep feelings are associated. Closely connected with salacity, particularly in women, remarks Connolly Norman when discussing mania, Tuke's Dictionary of Psychological Medicine, is religious excitement. Ecstasy, as we can see in cases of acute mental disease, is probably always connected with sexual excitement, if not with sexual depravity. The same association is constantly seen in less extreme cases, and one of the commonest features in the conversation of an acutely maniacal woman is the intermingling of erotic and religious ideas. Patients who believe, remarks Clara Barras, that they are the Virgin Mary, the Bride of Christ, the Church, God's wife, and Raphael's consort, 
are sure, sooner or later, to disclose symptoms which show that they are some way or other sexually depraved. Forel, who devotes a chapter of his book, Sexuelle Frage, to the subject, argues that the strongest feelings of religious emotion are often unconsciously rooted in erotic emotion, or represent a transformation of such emotion. And in an interesting discussion, chapter 6, of this question in his Sexual Abend unserer Zeit, Bloch states that, in a certain sense, we may describe the history of religions as the history of a special manifestation of the human sexual instinct. Ball, Broardel, Morselli, Vallon, and Marie C. H. Hughes, to mention but a few names among many, have emphasized the same point. Kraft Ebbing deals briefly with the connection between holiness and sexual emotion, and the special liability of the saints to sexual temptations. He thus states his own conclusions. Religious and sexual emotional states, at the height of their development, exhibit a harmony in quantity and quality of excitement, and can thus, in certain circumstances, act vicariously. Both, he adds, can be converted into cruelty under pathological conditions. After quoting these opinions, it is perhaps not unnecessary to point out that while sexual emotion constitutes the main reservoir of energy on which religion can draw, it is far from constituting either the whole content of religion or its root. Mauricier, in an able study of the psychology of religious ecstasy, justly protests against too crude an explanation of its nature, though at the same time he admits that the passion of the religious ecstatic lacks nothing of what goes to make up sexual love, not even jealousy. Serieux, in his little work Recherche clinique sur les anomalies de l'instinct sexuel, valuable on account of its instructive cases, records in detail a case which so admirably illustrates this phase of autoeroticism on the borderland between ordinary erotic daydreaming and religious mysticism, the phenomena for a time reaching an insane degree of intensity, that I summarize it. Therese M., aged twenty-four, shows physical stigmata of degeneration. The heredity is also bad. The father is a man of reckless and irregular conduct. The mother was at one time in a lunatic asylum. The patient was brought up in an orphanage, and was a troublesome, volatile child. She treated household occupations with contempt, but was fond of study. Even at an early age her lively imagination attracted attention and the pleasure which she took in building castles in the air. From the age of seven to ten she masturbated. At her first communion she felt that Jesus would forever be the one master of her heart. At thirteen, after the death of her mother, she seemed to see her, and to hear her say that she was watching over her child. Shortly afterward she was overwhelmed by a new grief, the death of a teacher, for whom she cherished great affection on account of her pure character. On the following day she seemed to see and hear this teacher, and would not leave the house where the body lay. Tendencies to melancholy appeared. Suddenly, saddened by the funeral ceremonies, exhorted by nuns, fed on mystic reverie, she passed from the orphanage to a convent. She devoted herself solely to the worship of Jesus. To be like Jesus, to be near Jesus, became her constant preoccupations. 
The Virgin's name was rarely seen in her writings. God's name never. I wanted, she said, to love Jesus more than any of the nuns I saw, and I even thought that he had a partiality for me. She was also haunted by the idea of preserving her purity. She avoided frivolous conversation, and left the room when marriage was discussed, such a union being incompatible with a pure life. It was my fixed idea, for two years, to make my soul ever more pure in order to be agreeable to him. The beloved is well pleased among the lilies. Already, however, in a rudimentary form, appeared contrary tendencies. Strictly speaking, they were not contrary, but related tendencies. Beneath the mystic passion which concealed it, sexual desire was sometimes felt. At sixteen she experienced emotions which she could not master when thinking of a priest who, she said, loved her. In spite of all remorse, she would have been willing to have relations with him. Notwithstanding these passing weaknesses, the idea of purity always possessed her. The nuns, however, were concerned about her exaltation. She was sent away from the convent, became discouraged, and took a place as a servant, but her fervor continued. Her confessor inspired her with great affection. She sends him tender letters. She would be willing to have relations with him, even though she considers the desire a temptation of the devil. The ground was now prepared for the manifestation of hallucinations. One evening in May, she writes, after being absorbed in thoughts of my confessor, and feeling discouraged, as I thought that Jesus, whom I loved so much, would have nothing to do with me, Mother, I cried out, what must I do to win your son? My eyes were fixed on the sky, and I remained in a state of mad expectation. It was absurd. I to become the mother of the world? My heart went on repeating, Yes, he is coming. Jesus is coming. The psychic erethism, reverberating on the sensorial and sensory centers, led to genital, auditory, and visual hallucinations, which produced the sensation of sexual connection. For the first time I went to bed and was not alone. As soon as I felt that touch, I heard the words, Fear not, it is I. I was lost in him whom I loved. For many days I was cradled in a world of pleasure. I saw him everywhere, overwhelming me with his chaste caresses. On the following day, at Mass, she seemed to see Calvary before her. Jesus was naked, and surrounded by a thousand voluptuous imaginations. His arms were loosened from the cross, and he said to me, Come. I longed to fly to him with my body, but I could not make up my mind to show myself naked. However, I was carried away by a force I could not control. I threw myself on my Saviour's neck and felt that all was over between the world and me. From that day, by sheer reasoning, she has understood everything. Previously, she thought that the religious life was a renunciation of the joys of marriage and enjoyment generally. Now she understands its object. Jesus Christ desires that she should have relations with a priest. He is himself incarnated in priests. Just as St. Joseph was the guardian of the Virgin, so are priests the guardians of nuns. She has been impregnated by Jesus, and this imaginary pregnancy preoccupies her in the highest degree. From this time she masturbated daily. 
She cannot even go to communion without experiencing voluptuous sensations. Her delusions having thus become systematized, nothing shakes her tenacity in seeking to carry them out. She attempts at all costs to have relations with her confessor, embraces him, throws herself at his knees, pursues him, and so becomes a cause of scandal. When brought to the asylum, there is intense sexual excitement, and she masturbates a dozen times a day, even when talking to the doctor. The sexual organs are normal, the vulva moist and red, the vagina is painful to touch. The contact of the finger causes erectile turgescence. She has had no rest, she says, since she has learned to love her Jesus. He desires her to have sexual relations with someone, and she cannot succeed. All my soul's strength is arrested by this constant endeavor. Her new surroundings modify her behavior, and now it is the doctor whom she pursues with her obsessions. I have expected everything from the charity of the priests I have known. I have not deserved what I wanted from them. But is not a doctor free to do everything for the good of the patients entrusted to him by providence? Cannot a doctor thus devote himself? Since I have tasted the tree of life, I am tormented by the desire to share it with a living friend. Then she falls in love with an employee, and makes the crudest advances to him, believing that she is thus executing the will of Jesus. Necessity makes laws, she exclaims to him. The moments are pressing. I have been waiting too long. She still speaks of her religious vocation which might be compromised by so long a delay. I do not want to get married. Gradually a transformation took place. The love of God was effaced, and earthly love became more intense than ever. Quitting the heights in which I wish to soar, I am becoming so near to earth that I shall soon fix my desires there. In the last letter, Therese recognizes with terror the insanity to which the exaltation of her imagination had led her. Now I only believe in God and in suffering. I feel it is necessary for me to get married. Mariani has very fully described a case of erotico-religious insanity, climacteric paranoia on an hysterical basis, in a married woman of forty-four. During the early stages of her disorder she inflicted all sorts of penances upon herself, fasting, constant prayer, drinking her own urine, cleaning dirty plates with her tongue, etc. Finally, she felt that by her penances she had obtained forgiveness of her sins, and then began a stage of joy and satisfaction, during which she believed that she had entered into a state of the most intimate personal relationship with Jesus. She finally recovered. Mariani shows how closely this history corresponds with the histories of the saints, and that all the acts and emotions of this woman can be exactly paralleled in the lives of famous saints. The justice of these comparisons becomes manifest when we turn to the records that have been left by holy persons. A most instructive record from this point of view is the autobiography of Sir Jean des Anges, superior of the Ursuline of Loudon in the seventeenth century. She was clever, beautiful, ambitious, fond of pleasure, still more of power. With this, as sometimes happens, she was highly hysterical, and in the early years of her religious life was possessed by various demons of unchastity and blasphemy, with whom for many years she was in constant struggle. She fell in love with a priest of Loudon, Grandier, 
a man whom she had never even seen, only knowing of him as a powerful and fascinating personality at whose feet all women fell, and she imagined that she and the other nuns of her convent were possessed through his influence. She was thus the cause of the trial and execution of Grandier, a famous case in the annals of witchcraft. In her autobiography, Sir Jean describes in detail how the demons assailed her at night, appearing in lascivious attitudes, making indecent proposals, raising the bedclothes, touching all parts of her body, imploring her to yield to them, and she tells how strong her temptation was to yield. On one night, for instance, she writes, I seemed to feel someone's breath, and I heard a voice saying, The time for resistance has gone by. You must no longer rebel. By putting off your consent to what has been proposed, you will be injured. You cannot persist in this resistance. God has subjected you to the demands of a nature which you must satisfy on occasions so urgent. Then I felt impure impressions in my imagination and disordered movements in my body. I persisted in saying at the bottom of my heart that I would do nothing. I turned to God and asked Him for strength in this extraordinary struggle. Then there was a loud noise in my room, and I felt as if someone had approached me and put his hand into my bed and touched me, and having perceived this, I rose in a state of restlessness which lasted for a long time afterward. Some days later, at midnight, I began to tremble all over my body as I lay in bed, and to experience much mental anxiety without knowing the cause. After this had lasted for some time, I heard noises in various parts of my room. The sheet was twice pulled without entirely uncovering me. The oratory close to my bed was upset. I heard a voice on the left side toward which I was lying. I was asked if I had thought over the advantageous offer that had been made to me. It was added, I have come to know your reply. I will keep my promise if you will give your consent. If, on the contrary, you refuse, you will be the most miserable girl in the world, and all sorts of mischances will happen to you. I replied, If there were no God, I would fear these threats. I am consecrated to Him. It was replied to me, You will not get much help from God. He will abandon you. I replied, God is my father. He will take care of me. I have resolved to be faithful to him. He said, I will give you three days to think over it. I rose and went to the holy sacrament with an anxious mind. Having returned to my room and being seated on a chair, it was drawn from under me so that I fell on the floor. Then the same things happened again. I heard a man's voice saying lascivious and pleasant things to seduce me. He pressed me to give him room in my bed. He tried to touch me in an indecent way. I resisted and prevented him, calling the nuns who were near my room. The window had been open. It was closed. I felt strong movements of love for a certain person, an improper desire for dishonorable things. She writes again, at a later period, These impurities and the fire of concupiscence which the evil spirit caused me to feel, beyond all that I can say, forced me to throw myself onto braziers of hot coal, where I would remain for half an hour at a time, in order to extinguish that other fire, so that half my body was quite burnt. At other times, in the depth of winter, 
I have sometimes passed part of the night entirely naked in the snow, or in tubs of icy water. I have, besides, often gone among thorns, so that I have been torn by them. At other times I have rolled in nettles, and have passed whole nights defying my enemies to attack me, and assuring them that I was resolved to defend myself with the grace of God. With her confessor's permission she also had an iron girdle made, with spikes, and wore this day and night for nearly six months, until the spikes so entered her flesh that the girdle could only be removed with difficulty. By means of these austerities she succeeded in almost exercising the demons of unchastity, and a little later, after a severe illness, of which she believed that she was miraculously cured by St. Joseph, she appeared before the world almost as a saint, herself possessing a miraculous power of healing. She travelled through France, bringing healing wherever she went. The king, the queen, and Cardinal Richelieu were at her feet, and so great became the fame of her holiness that her tomb was a shrine for pilgrims for more than a century after her death. It was not until late in life, and after her autobiography terminates, that sexual desire in Sir Jean, though it seems never to have quite disappeared, became transformed into passionate love of Jesus, and it is only in her later letters that we catch glimpses of the complete transmutation. Thus, in one of her later letters we read, I cried with ardor, Lord, join me to thyself, transform thyself unto me. It seemed to me that that lovable spouse was reposing in my heart as on his throne. What makes me almost swoon with love and admiration is a certain pleasure which it seems to me that he takes when all my being flows into his, restoring to him with respect and love all that he has given to me. Sometimes I have permission to speak to our Lord with more familiarity, calling him my love, interesting him in all that I ask of him, as well for myself as for others. The lives of all the great saints and mystics bear witness to operations similar to those so vividly described by Sir Jean des Anges, though it is very rarely that any saint has so frankly presented the dynamic mechanism of the autoerotic process. The indications they give us, however, are sufficiently clear. It is enough to refer to the special affection which the mystics have ever borne toward the Song of Songs, and to note how the most earthly expressions of love in that poem enter as a perpetual refrain into their writings. The courage of the early Christian martyrs, it is abundantly evident, was in part supported by an exaltation which they frankly drew from the sexual impulse. Follicula, we are told in the Acts of Achilles and Nereus, preferred imprisonment, torture, and death to marriage or pagan sacrifices. When on the rack she was bidden to deny Christianity, she exclaimed, Ego non nego amatorum meum, I will not deny my lover, who for my sake has eaten gall and drunk vinegar, crowned with thorns and fastened to the cross. Christian mysticism and its sexual colouring was absorbed by the Islamic world at a very early period, and intensified. In the thirteenth century it was reintroduced into Christendom in this intensified form by the genius of Raymond Lull, who had himself been born on the confines of Islam, and his Book of Love and the Friend is a typical manifestation of sexual mysticism which inspired the great Spanish school of mystics a few centuries later. 
the delicious agony, the sweet martyrdom, the strongly combined pleasure and pain experienced by St. Teresa, were certainly associated with physical sexual sensations. The case of Marguerite Marie Alouk is typical. Jesus, as her autobiography shows, was always her lover, her husband, her dear master. She was betrothed to him. He is the most passionate of lovers. Nothing can be sweeter than his caresses. They are so excessive she is beside herself with the delight of them. The central imagination of the mystic consists essentially, as Ribot remarks, in a love romance. If we turn to the most popular devotional work that was ever written, The Imitation of Christ, we shall find that the love there expressed is precisely and exactly the love that finds its motive power in the emotions aroused by a person of the other sex. A very intellectual woman once remarked to me that the book seemed to her a sort of religious aphrodisiac. If we read, for instance, Book Three, Chapter Five of this work, De Mirabili Affectu Divini Amoris, we shall find in the eloquence of this solitary monk in the low countries neither more nor less than the emotions of every human lover at their highest limit of exaltation. Nothing is sweeter than love, nothing stronger, nothing higher, nothing broader, nothing pleasanter, nothing fuller nor better in heaven or in earth. He who loves flies, runs, and rejoices. He is free, cannot be held. He gives all in exchange for all and possesses all in all. He looks not at gifts, but turns to the giver above all good things. Love knows no measure, but is fervent beyond all measure. Love feels no burden, thinks nothing of labor, strives beyond its force, reckons not of impossibility, for it judges that all things are possible. Therefore it attempts all things, and therefore it effects much, when he who is not a lover fails and falls. My love, thou all mine, and I all thine. There is a certain natural disinclination in many quarters to recognize any special connection between the sexual emotions and the religious emotions, but this attitude is not reasonable. A man who is swayed by religious emotions cannot be held responsible for the indirect emotional results of his condition. He can be held responsible for their control. Nothing is gained by refusing to face the possibility that such control may be necessary, and much is lost. There is, certainly, as I have tried to indicate, good reason to think that the action and interaction between the spheres of sexual and religious emotion are very intimate. The obscure promptings of the organism at puberty frequently assume on the psychic scale a wholly religious character. The activity of the religious emotions sometimes tends to pass over into the sexual region. The suppression of the sexual emotions often furnishes a powerful reservoir of energy to the religious emotions. Occasionally, the suppressed sexual emotions break through all obstacles. End of Appendix C